0: in Acts chapter 15 this morning, and we're going to look at the last portion, verse 36, and on to the end of the chapter. But before we get into to the specifics of that, I, I want you to know that this, this message, in fact, this these few verses we're going to read today are my least favorite verses in the entire book of Acts, because they don't seem to, to jive with the rest of the book in terms of the progression of what God is doing in the church. In fact, not only is it the the least favorite in in the book of Acts, part of the challenge for me, even for me in this message today, you're going to hear some of my own personal journey, is that this hits home in a very personal way because one of the struggles I've always had in my life and God has helped me to work through is that I've gone through seasons of my life where I've lived in unreconciled relationships with other people. And God doesn't want that to happen. This morning we're going to talk about, in fact, the title is interesting. It's separated for the gospel with a question mark. Because in the passage we're going to read in just a moment, Paul and Barnabas, which usually when you say Paul, Barnabas rolls right off your tongue, because they're always mentioned in, in connection to each other, actually have an incredible dispute that leads to them being separated. And it, it, it burdens my heart every time I read it, because I know the pain of what happens in separation, disagreement, and, and unresolved issues. But here's the crazy thing about what we'll read through this, and even as we go on in the rest of the the book of Acts. I've discovered that God loves people so much that he will work beyond your brokenness. If God waited for the church to be perfect to do anything in the world, we'd all still be waiting, wouldn't we? But God, despite the division and the separation and the unreconciled relationships that we have, God loves people so much, he won't let our brokenness get in the way of his mission. That's good news. If you don't believe that, just read the Bible, because you won't find any perfect people except one, and his name was Jesus. People are messed up. I've been reading through Genesis. Read through Genesis and tell me, like, we always have to say, well, I'm going to be perfect, and I'm going to be moral, and I'm going to do this, and God's going to use me. Yeah, he probably will, but you know, he's going to use the broken person too. Read about Jacob. Tell me what a great guy Jacob was. Sorry if your name is Jacob. No offense. <laughs> God kept blessing Jacob, even though he was a liar, and a cheat, and a deceiver, and and then you, then you get to where, the, where do the 12 tribes of Israel come from? They come from a rivalry between two women who actually start handing off their maidservants to their husbands. So the tr- 12 tribes of Israel come from four different women. You're like, how does that work? God loves people, and his purpose will be fulfilled despite us. That's good news. Because if God had waited for the perfect person, you and I wouldn't be here. So those two tensions where there's this brokenness that we live with and the fact that God wants to advance his purpose, but we will see when we get to the end of the passage we look at today and some other passages, that God knows that we're going to be broken and knows that we're going to have difficulty, knows that we're going to offend each other, but being reconciled is the most important thing that he desires for our relationships because that is what human history is about. All of human history, the gospel is wrapped up in one word, reconciliation. That's why we use that little phrase on the wall out there, with Jesus. That all of what we're going through, that the Bible actually tells us that God is in the process of reconciling everything, human beings to each other and to God, Humanity, not humanity, but, but, but down, to, down to the level of DNA to the, the, this expanse of the universe. God has reconciled everything that sin has broken back to Him through Jesus. That's the story of mankind. The culmination is an eternity where everything's fully reconciled. So God cares a lot about broken relationships that are unresolved and unreconciled because he actually unfolded all of human history for one goal so that we would be right with him and right with each other. So with that in mind this morning, I want to read this passage, and then we're going to walk through an understanding how God does work and wants to work through our broken humanity and the challenges that we have with each other. Starting in verse 36, Acts chapter 15. Says, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord, and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take him with one, one with who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia, and who had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him, and he sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through uh, Syria and Cil- Cilicia, uh, strengthening the churches. So when you read that, it's like, okay, well, then they just go on their, their ways. Okay, so you, Barnabas takes Mark, Paul takes Silas, everybody's good, and we move on. But I don't think everybody was good. The gospel's good because God's going to advance his purpose. But what, what's going on here? Some things that you and I need to understand in the midst of our broken humanity, how God works. The first one is this. Look at verses 37 and 38. This is the reality of our humanity. Disagreements can happen. How many know that's true? Raise your hand. All of us know that. In our best intentions, we offend people and are offended by other people. Disagreements can happen. These these things can come up uh, between us. This comes up between Paul and Barnabas. This 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 little disagreement is not little at all. It's, it's, it's what's going on here. So, so they went off on a missionary journey, and they took Mark with them, and Mark couldn't hang for some reason. We don't know why. So he bailed on Paul and Barnabas. He pulled out of whatever they were going to do work. And because of that, Paul has this, this mindset, Mark's no good. We can't trust him. He's not faithful, so we need to leave him behind. But Barnabas, remember, remember Paul and Barnabas' relationship. Paul almost owes his life and ministry to Barnabas. Because back in Acts chapter 9, remember when Paul gets saved and he goes through this amazing transformation and the Lord encounters him on this road and, and he calls him, he blinds him, and then he gets his sight and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he wants to go start preaching to the disciples. And you remember what happens when he first enters the place where the disciples are? They're like, whoa, we know this guy. This guy's persecuting the church. He's killing Christians. We don't want any part of him. And then Barnabas steps in, true to his name, son of encouragement, and says, no, no, this is legit. Paul has really been changed, and he sponsors him. So this is the tension going on underneath the surface. And then added on top of that, what we'll see from a later passage, Mark is actually related to Barnabas because they're cousins. So what Paul, s- is, Paul is separating, Bar- Barnabas is separating through a profound, deep relationship, and Paul is asking Barnabas to actually forsake his own family. And there comes this separation. Those are the kind of details that happen in our lives all the time where disagreements happen. Things get complicated. Things get messy. And we never wanted them to get that way, but they just get that way. Why? Because we're human and we struggle with our own relationships. Here's one of the things that I know I've discovered in ministry is that when you are a church planter, you have this rose-colored reality that you really believe is true. And that is that when you plant a church, you're going to save the world idea. That's what gets you. This fuels you. I'm just going to go save the world. When we planted a church in Ventura, this was my mindset. We're going to go out and we're going to save the world. But when I was going through my training, there was one particular uh, wise sage who had planted in his ministry about a hundred churches in the U.S., and this is what he said. He said, I'll use church church planters. You got a lot of energy, but you don't have a lot of wisdom and experience yet. In fact, one of the things you think you're going to do is you think you're going to save the world. We're all sitting there, yeah, we're going to save the world. Like no other other generation, we're going to go save the world, right? He says, well, just before you get all excited about saving the world, let me just warn you about something you're going to encounter in the first few years of your ministry. He said, when you open the doors to your church and you plant a church, the majority of people that will walk through the doors and be a part of your church are not going to be non-Christians. They're not going to be people who need to be saved yet. They're going to be broken, hurt, offended people from other churches in your community. I remember when he said that, I'm like, not my church. We're going to do it better. But you know, in the, in the in the great the words of the great theologian Mike Tyson, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face, right? <laughs> we have these ideal realities what's going to happen, and then boom, reality sets in, and that's exactly what happened in our church. I'm not exaggerating. Ninety five percent of the people who came to our church the first two years were not non Christians. They were broken people who were upset and mad at the last church that they came from, and you know what happened? Eventually not all of them, but many of them got mad at me or somebody else in our church and they left our church two years later And come to find out they had done that over and over and over and over again Disagreements happen, but the question is how do you handle a disagreement? How do you handle it? Do you do what's happened in this passage and you separate? Or do you find a way to work through that? Because that's one of the dangers with having lots of churches It creates lots of options for us to never deal with the issues of why we left in the first place. See, this is the the craziness of the way God works. God still works even when we blow it. How do we know that? All the separation that's happened over the years, you know the estimate today of how many denominations there are in the world? A low estimate is 40,000 denominations. And when you actually start looking at those denominations, they're not talking about what would be considered a cult, but when you look at those denominations that represented those 40,000, the majority of their theology is very, very similar. Their practice is different with some minor theological differences. But, you know, it's interesting. I don't know someone should do a study, but uh, I would estimate that a good m- majority or maybe at least half of those denominations started with the idea of pure, pure doctrine or practice. We're going to do different. But they were fueled by what? Somebody got offended and said, you know what? I'm going to go do it better than you. I'm going to go do it on my own. I can do it better than you. Why? Because it wasn't fueled by you're going to do it better. It was fueled by I'm going to get away from that person because I feel offended by them. But yet, how in the world is that possible? Of those 40,000 denominations, that represents literally billions of people on this planet that know Jesus. I don't know why God does it that way. That's the way, God, I know why God is it that way, because nothing would ever get done if he waited for perfection, right? Because he loves people. So there's disagreements that happen. Second thing, look at verse 39. God's purpose through our broken humanity means divisions shouldn't happen, but it does. How many know that's true? Verse 39, This arose a sharp dispute or disagreement between them. They separated. They, Paul and Barnabas separate in this. So when we have a disagreement, do we choose the normal option of what humanity does, which I get offended and I leave? I separate. I go isolate. I do my own thing. Or is there another way to go about it? I think the Bible talks about there's another way to go about it, but we have to choose that. Do we stay in the game and fight for reconciliation and fight for restoration? Listen to what Paul actually, in his own words, says this in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. He says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He's not saying what the other person is supposed to do. He's saying what you're supposed to do, which is within my power and my ability, am I seeking peace and reconciliation in my relationships with other people? Why is this so important? Because what did Jesus say in John 13, 35? He says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if what? If you love one another. I'll just be honest with you. I don't blame one non Christian who looks at the church and says, No thanks. You guys are hypocrites. Guilty as charged. For God so loved the world that he sent his son, the one that we follow, the one that calls us to love, and yet we struggle. And I'm not even talking about denominations, I'm just talking about within the church. We struggle to get along. But that should be a marker of the church. The world should look at the church as the world struggles, and we are in the most probably divided season in our nation in a long time. And the world looks, and the country looks at the church and says, Give us the answer. And then they look at the church and think, you guys aren't any different than us. Why should we follow this Jesus who's supposed to bring love amongst his followers, yet you guys can't get along? It's important for us. Now, we don't just do that because somehow we have people looking at us, but here's the thing I found in my life. God wants me to live in reconciled relationships, so much so, he won't let it lie. He keeps making me have to face my past and my broken relationships that I have separated over. So when I was in college, I was a part of a great college ministry. We were doing profound ministry in inner city Hollywood. I loved what I was doing. I was alive. For the first time in my life, I really had a passion for ministry and God's purpose and mission in the world, and we were doing great things, and yet I had a disagreement with the leadership. And I remember I sat down with my college pastor in his office, and I announced to him, I'm leaving. And I'm going to explain to you why I'm leaving. And I gave him all the list of why he was theologically wrong, he was practically wrong, all these different things, and I just said, I'm out. And I remember his look on his face, he was stunned. Because it came out of left field, because I had no, there was no process, there was not like, hey, I'm struggling with this, it was just, boom, here it is. And so, about an hour later, he tried to explain things, I said, well, I'm done, and so I left, not good. And so you think, okay, I've left, so I can move on. How many know that's a lie? Because that thing keeps haunting you, and you keep feeling that. And and for years, I would think fondly of my my few years in ministry in Hollywood. Then always, every time, there would be this little twinge of pain in there, because I knew I walked away with unreconciled relationships. And so the way that God works, and I a couple of years later, I had tried to reach back out to Him, and I couldn't really. We never really got in contact. And so I'm like, I'll just I'll just let it lie. I'll just deal with it. And and then, in January this year. I'm at a conference, and guess who the keynote speaker is? It's my college pastor. No stinking way. <laughs> that is not a coincidence. So he's there, and so in fact, I said hello beforehand, and we hugged, and it was good, but you could just feel underneath the service there's still something there. So after the, at the end of the day, and the conference was ending, I went up and got in this long line. He was waiting for me. I'm like, I'll wait here. I know what I'm supposed to do. The Lord was just saying, This is what you're doing. So I waited, and I said to him, I finally got, we're face-to-face, and I looked at him, I said, listen, I said, do you remember how I left the church? He said, oh, yeah, I remember. (laughs) I'm telling you, this is like 30 years. I said, will you forgive me for leaving instead of resolving? And he looked at me, and he said, absolutely, I'll forgive you. And he said this, he said, listen, he goes, that was a long time ago. And I love what he said. He goes, we were both stupid. <laughs> I'm like, I'll own my stupidity. You own yours. And we hugged. And I walked away. And now, the last few months, when I think about that season of my life, guess what? There's no pain anymore. There's no bitterness. There's no angst. There's no offense. Because it's dealt with. And it wasn't, I wish I could say, it's because I did a great job trying to, r- no, it's because God kept hounding me. And he was going to, it took him 30 years, because I'm a little slow, to finally bring it full circle don't wait 30 years for those relationships to be reconciled don't separate over those things because god wants reconciled relationships. third thing look at verses 40 and 41 so god's purpose comes through our broken humanity because mission will happen god's purpose will be fulfilled even though we're sinners even though we're broken God loves people. It says in verses 40 and 41, what happened is so Paul and Silas, they depart. Where do they go? It says they go to command the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and they went to, uh, they went to Syria and uh, Sicily, and they're strengthening churches. So we'll, you don't, don't cheat, don't read ahead, but if you get to chapter 16 of Acts, this is what's crazy. So this sharp disagreement happens. Paul and Barnabas split, and then you get into chapter 16, and now it's Paul, not Paul and Barnabas, it's Paul and Silas. And so now they go, and through their intention, they're trying to go preach the gospel, and the Holy Spirit actually stops them twice, not because of some disobedience, but because God's mission was going to be fulfilled in this little city called Philippi. And finally, when they stop, Paul gets a vision, and he goes, and, he, and they end up in Philippi. And this is what happens the first ministry assignment for Paul and Silas after their broken humanity comes to the surface. They go into the city of Philippi, and that's where, in this encounter, they meet a group of women praying down by the river and that's where the church at Philippi is planted. We have the book of Philippians which is like the one book that Paul writes that's pretty much positive because <laughs> there's a church that got it. That's get started. And then Subsequent to that, there's a slave girl who's been dominated by a demon. She gets set free because she's been a fortune teller for her masters. So basically, she's been trafficked. She gets set free from the demons, so she's no use to her, her, her owners anymore because now she's not doing what they want her to do. And the result is there's a riot that breaks out. Paul and Silas get arrested. They get beaten t- almost to the point of death. Their backs are ripped open. They're put in the inner, s- inner cell. They're put in stocks, so they're in excruciating pain. And I love how it says in verse 25, At about midnight... Paul and Silas were singing praises to God. And then what happens next? An earthquake hits the jail, busts open all the the cells. Nobody escapes. The jailer's about to kill himself, and they said, no, everybody's still here. Then Paul shares the gospel with this centurion, Cornelius, his family, excuse me, Cornelius is early in in Acts 10, but with this Philippian jailer who's a a non-Jew Gentile Roman, and his entire family gets saved. So you catch that? A church gets planted, a slave girl gets freed, and an entire family comes to Jesus. God's mission is going to be accomplished through a group of guys who had just divided over a disagreement. What does that say? That means God loves people. God loved the people of Philippi so much, he didn't wait for Paul to be perfect before he used him. Now hear me. You're thinking, I can just go live like I want to live. God can do anything he wants through me. I'm just, uh, nope, that's not what this is saying. Because this is about relationships, because the story's not over in this. But mission happens, because God works this way. In fact, not unlike, maybe you don't even realize this, but our church, our, the history of our church has something similar to this. So most of you know, if you haven't, this obviously the church that we are called, Antioch now, originally the name of the church was Sunrise started back in about 1990. Long time before that ever unfolded, something happened in Ventura that affected the future of this city and this church. There was a young youth pastor who uh, was doing some great things but got into a disagreement and some things that, that he was questioned by leadership with, and so he decided to walk, and they actually fired him. Fired him from his youth pastor position. And so instead of reconciling in that moment, this is what he said, I'm going to go plant a church. And I'm going to do it better than they do. And so he did. He planted a church in Ventura. And that church became the fastest growing city, or fastest growing church in the city of Ventura at the time. Amazing. A few years after that, another pastor came into that church and said, this isn't right. Doesn't, this is not right. We can't coexist in t- with two churches now and two leaders or people that are not getting along. So he reached out to that youth pastor who had planted this church and said, we need to reconcile. Coolest thing ever. A Sunday night, they had a service just for reconciliation. And they brought that guy back in who had planted a church in the city, and they they asked for his forgiveness for the way things had happened years before, and he asked forgiveness for what he had done, and they reconciled. About five years after that, the youth pastor of that church, which was the church that this other youth pastor had planted, got this idea God wants to reach people in Simi Valley. His name was Ken Craft, and he came and planted sunrise. And we are here today because of that journey, because God used a bunch of broken people over the last 20 or 30 years to reach people. Aren't you glad that God doesn't wait for perfection? And aren't you glad that God pushes us to reconcile our relationships? Because I know at the end of the day, when I stand before Jesus someday, he's, I'm not, I can't hold out my ministry resume and say, hey, look at me. Because I know one of the things I'm going to have to deal with is, is, if I'm wanting to be reconciled with God and be with the Trinity from heaven, part of that reconciliation is the way I reconcile the people around me. Because you can't be good with God and bad with people. They're connected. So God's mission is still going to be accomplished in the midst of our brokenness. And there's a final thing in just a few moments. We'll have a worship team come back and we'll... The communion, but this is this is what I, I want us to grasp. God's purpose through broken humanity also means that restoration must happen. You and I can never ever be okay with not being okay with people. We can't, because Jesus was never okay with not being okay with the world, because He loved us. So what happens is that we don't have the. The backstory. We don't ever have this wonderful place in Scripture where Paul and Barnabas came together and they hugged in tears, and we don't have that. It could have happened, but I know some. T- there's evidence of some kind of restoration that happens, because Paul, in his writings, starts to talk about Mark in a different light than he did in Acts chapter fifteen. Listen to second, er, excuse me, Col- Colossians chapter four, verse ten. It says Aristarchus, my fellow prison, uh, prisoner, greets you, and Mark the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you received uh, instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. This is the guy that Paul rejected. He says, welcome him. But listen to what he says. He goes for this is second, Timothy chapter four, verse 11. It says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. That's huge. That's a complete shift in Paul's understanding of who Mark is, which means something happened in Paul to bring about restoration of Mark, which I can make a pretty positive like leap to something had to happen with Barnabas in the middle of that. I don't know, maybe, maybe Paul's just a little bit stubborn like us, and his way of saying to Barnabas, I'm sorry, is to say Mark's a good guy. I don't know. But there's evidence of restoration in Paul's writings that he's now restoring Mark to a place where he could never see him before. Something's happened in Paul. And that's important for you and I to understand because God always wants us to live in reconciled relationships. And he'll keep pursuing that because he wants that. Because his desire is ultimately, isn't it all these great things that we can do for God, is that are we right with each other? Because it's the one sign that the world looks at and looks for. Do they get this thing called love? Do they actually love each other? Because even when they harm each other, do they still love each other? That's what the world is looking for and we should have the answer. As I mentioned, there's so much of this personally that I've walked in that I know that God wants us to live in reconciliation because in my life I've mentioned he won't let it lie. So a number of years ago we were on vacation and I normally don't answer calls that I know are coming from church folk on vacation unless I hear it's an emergency and so we were on vacation, my phone rang, and it was a good friend of mine in the church. And I thought, man, I better answer this, because this could be somebody's sick in the hospital, some, there's some crisis going on, and so I answered it. And within the first 30 seconds, I realized there was no crisis, there was no person in the hospital. He just announced to me within the first 30 seconds, I'm, me and my family are leaving the church because you're a horrible pastor. I'm like, wow, why did I answer that? So he went on, and on, and on, and somehow in my best efforts as a pastor to try to lead him to Jesus and help him follow Jesus, I failed, and he was mad at me, and I didn't do what he wanted me to do, and so for 30 minutes he went on and on and on and told me how horrible I was, and I said, listen, I am sorry for whatever I did. I said, I don't know what I did. I tried to do my best. I tried to help you and your family. They had gone through a lot of stuff in their life. And so at the end of the conversation, I said, hey, I pray that God takes you to a place where you can grow, and he just hung up on me. That hurt a lot. I'll be honest, it pretty much ruined my vacation because the whole time, my mind was just going, where did I blow it, where did I blow it, where did I blow it? And it stayed with me for for a long time. And every once in a while, it would just kind of creep back in. i just, man, Lord, why did it end that way? I wish there was, and I knew the door was closed with him. So a few years later, we moved to Oregon, if you, we've been up there for probably about four or five years, and I'm sitting I can still I remember these locations. I remember the, the room I was in when he was going after me on the phone. I remember the desk I was sitting at when I saw his email come through. And I saw his name, and I'm like, "Oh no, I don't want to open that email. It's too painful. He's going to go off on me again." This had probably been like seven or eight years. So I clicked on his email and opened it. And in the first couple of lines, this is what he said. I've changed, and I need to ask for your forgiveness. So he goes on in this lengthy email to explain to me that after they left the church, his life fell apart, made some bad decisions in his life, disconnected from church, just the wheels came off. He said, but God kept pursuing him, and he ended up back in a church again. And the Sunday prior to his email, the pastor had talked about, unreconciled relationships had nothing to do with it okay had nothing to do with it The church was a thousand of miles away from me and he said as he preached i knew you kept coming to my mind that i needed to ask you for your forgiveness i'm sitting there at my desk just weeping and i said you're i emailed back i said you're forgiven i said we're good funny thing is two years ago since we were back down here i ran into him again in person It's the coolest thing when you run into somebody that you were hurt by but you're reconciled with because there's no more pain we hugged each other we've had lunch together and it's like it's this amazing thing that i don't walk around with this pain in me anymore because the the, the relationship's been reconciled and i share that because this is one of those messages that i know for so many of us we all. We struggle because we're human. We're going to offend and be offended. But what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Because I know God cares deeply about our relationships. And in a few moments, we're going to go into a time of communion. But but I want you just to, to think, there's a couple things I want to highlight that are really important. Why are relationships so important? Because you don't understand the ramifications of your relationship with one person that is unreconciled actually holds power for generations to come. So I told you I've been reading in in Genesis. This was crazy. So you remember two guys. I mentioned one earlier. One named Jacob, one named Esau. Anybody remember that? You remember a guy named Abraham and his wife named Sarah? interesting things happened when sarah could not get pregnant and her frustration with god she offers hagar her servant to abraham so that they can have a child the fruit of that their offspring's name was ishmael and then god opened sarah's womb and she had isaac and if you don't know the story pretty much hagar and ishmael get they get marginalized they're they're not the chosen. So there's always this tension right there between Hagar and Sarah and Abraham trying to navigate that. And then Jacob comes along and Esau. When they're born, they're born in tension. Jacob's hanging on to Esau's foot as he comes out of the womb. They're already at battle inside their mother's womb. And if you don't know the story, what happens is that Jacob ends up stealing Esau's birthright, which leads to a division between the two of them. And this is interesting. If you keep reading through Genesis, you go back, and you know when Esau got married, you know what he did? He was so mad at his dad. So mad at his dad. He went to his dad's brother's household, Ishmael. And he took a wife from Ishmael's family, pardon my French, just to piss Abraham off. I mean, just to, excuse me, just to piss Isaac off, just because he was so angry. And then history unfolds. Where did the Jews come from? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Where did Arabs and most likely Islam come from? Ishmael, Esau, and then. That battle that started in Genesis is still being fought today. Because even if you read through Esau and Jacob, never Jacob even lied to Esau when they came to reconcile. There still was this tension in them. Do you think that God cares about unreconciled relationships? Absolutely he does. Absolutely he does. But here's the last thing. In fact, the worship team can come and join me. I have this, it's not set in stone. I can't go and give you chapter and verse, but this is my suspicion about some dimensions of what heaven is going to be like. When we think of heaven, we think of this place where I get a resurrected body, there's no longer mourning and sin and death and all the things that we struggle with in the life and it is going to be that but i'm convinced if you and i have unre- unreconciled relationships in this life there's going to have to be something done in eternity because let's just be honest your soul is going to stay with you who you are internally is going to be with you so if you're going to carry with you what you had in this life can you imagine the moment when you're like You get your resurrected body around the throne. Everyone's worshiping Jesus. It's great. And then you look around, and in the door walks that person. And if you're honest with yourself, like, I thought you weren't going to make it. I was banking on an eternity. Maybe I could be apart from you. I'm convinced if there's unreconciled relationships now, those will have to be dealt with when you're standing before the king it's not going to let it lie better to deal with it now better to face those broken relationships and do as much as you can to reconcile those things why because jesus died for us to reconcile us back to god the least we can do is to strive to be in reconciled relationships with each other the least so as we come to con- communion in just a few moments if you're visiting and just the first time Communion is done this way. In a moment, we're going to go into a song, and you're welcome to go to get the elements. And what we're doing is we're remembering Jesus' death. We take the cup, which is his blood, and the bread, which is his body, broken for us. And we remember that he gave his life for us when he died on the cross to take our sins so that we could have his righteousness. And we believe into that. That's why we do this. And so in a few moments, you can go to the the different stations. There's gluten-free in the back here if you need that. But as we prepare to do that, there's a couple things I really want us to be mindful of. Communion is not just about me. Communion is about us. When communion was first done, it wasn't done in isolation with one individual. It was done at what we call the Last Supper. It's when Jesus was gathered with his disciples. And it was a collective thing of being reminded that we do this in relationship. We do this in community. Why? Because God is, is, more, is just as concerned about our relationships with each other as he is with our relationship with him. And that means that as we come into this time of communion, we are going to do two things. The first one is, remember what Jesus has done for you. Remember the weight of your own sin and your brokenness that he's taken on himself and forgiven you for. And in that remembrance of what he's done for you, then you and I need to turn to see what God has also done for others. But then when we look at the people that we are having a hard time with, we're offended by, and there's maybe some deep things, just take a glimpse at your lifetime of sin Compare it to the one moment where that person failed you or maybe the two or maybe the five and realize that Jesus has forgiven me for all of this. The least I could do is forgive this person for this. So I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes because I want you to see a story that Jesus shared about this very thing because he cared so deeply that we would extend the same love and grace and mercy and forgiveness that he has extended us that we would extend to others. He told this very pointed story story you may be familiar with it but there's a story of a a man who had a debt and from modern-day calculations we figured his debt was probably in the millions and he came before the man he owned the debt to and he pleaded for forgiveness he didn't have money to repay the debt He, he didn't want to be in slavery and his family in slavery and so he pleaded with this man please forgive my debt And this man, his master, graciously said, I forgive this debt. Can you imagine what that would feel like to have millions and millions of dollars that you could not repay and you were gonna have to become a slave to pay it off for the rest of your life and in a moment, someone says to you, you're forgiven, the weight is gone. I wish the story ended there, but Jesus goes on in the story and he says this man went out and immediately he saw a man who owed him we can tell from modern day calculations he owed him pennies and this man who had been forgiven millions of dollars took this man who owed him pennies and said you pay me back every penny that you owe me then the master heard about this story because he had actually had that man thrown in jail because he he could not pay back pennies and then the man comes before the master again, who'd forgiven him the debt. And can you imagine what that encounter was like? For this master who had been so generous and so loving and so merciful and so gracious, and now this servant is in front of him again and he can't even forgive pennies. The end of the story is not good for that servant. The unmerciful servant ends up in the place that he didn't want to end up. He ended up in jail. He ended up incarcerated, he ended up bound. I think he was bound because he couldn't forgive. I think he was bound not just because the master put him in jail because he couldn't be merciful. I think he was bound because he didn't know how to set people free. And God is saying today, there are people in your life that need to be set free. There are people that need to be forgiven. There are relationships that need to be reconciled because we find freedom in that. We find love in that. We find grace. We find the pattern of what Jesus laid out for our lives to be. So I'm gonna encourage you as you take the cup and the bread today, You're remembering Jesus' sacrifice for you, but you are remembering that that sacrifice flows to you and through you to those who need forgiveness today. Jesus, would you come and by the work of your spirit do a supernatural work in us. Lord, give us the courage. Lord, I know pain runs deep, but I know your love is deeper than our pain. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us the capacity through our communion today to remember the wealth of forgiveness that we can draw from of what you've invested in us and we can extend that to others. We thank you, Jesus, in your name.